You are listening to The Last Aid Station on Mountain Bike Radio. Here's a message from our sponsor, Epic Rides. Hey there, I'm Chloe Woodruff, a Stan's No Tube-sponsored athlete and 2014 Whiskey Off-Road and Grand Junction Off-Road champion. I like participating in Epic Rides Off-Road Series events because the courses offer a fun way to experience some of Prescott and Grand Junction's finest trails. The three-day event weekends are filled with fun, music, and fellow bike-minded people. For complete event information and to register for the Whiskey or Grand, visit EpicRides.com. Welcome to the last aid station here on Mountain Bike Radio. Thank you for joining us here on the best place to gain all of your insight and entertainment from mountain biking, as well as being your best informative source for all things endurance off-road related here on the last aid station. We continue today with a very special standalone coverage of the Kenda National Ultra Endurance Series with stop number two on this year's calendar at the Okoe Whitewater Center in Ducktown, Tennessee at the Kohata 100 as presented by Trailhead Bicycle Company. I got a chance to attend the event in person, ride some great trail the day before, and avoid all the ugly weather the riders had to put up with on the morning of the race. That's a win-win situation for me in my book. Additionally, I had some great folks to stay with me in the last aid station cabin to gain some insight into the race from top contenders, both pre and post race, as well as hope that some of the talent of Gordon Wadsworth, Keck Baker, and Barnabas Freustad would somehow be gained through osmosis or respiration as we slept. The Kohata 100 is always a good race to check the talent out for the NUE, as by now many of the East Coast racers who are targeting the series or specific races are starting to show some fitness and form. And this is often where you find the front runners really having some competition, often in the form of past contenders showing up to test their legs and the legs of others, for that matter, traditional cross-country racers trying their hand at much longer distances, as well as strong road riders who will often try out endurance mountain bike racing at Kohuta, as its course contains nearly 70 miles of forest service roads and gravel, though the single track it does contain is old school gritty. And when it comes to that, it's more than a little bit of Rudy in sections. This year, a course change was a necessity due to some land use issues primarily, and many were concerned that the elimination of several notable climbs from the course, most notably the Monster Potato Patch Climb, as well as the elimination of the 8-mile Pinoti Single Track Trail section approximately halfway through the old course, would perhaps make this new course seem more pedestrian and a little too easy. Well, they shouldn't have feared for that outcome. The course designers threw in more single track right near the start, adding single track that previously had only been raced on in the shorter sister event, the Big Frog 65, with that single track adding approximately three or four miles of very flowy and fast ribbon-like trail along the contours of the man-made lakes before reconnecting with the previous course. The front end of the course contained nearly 25 miles of single track before breaking out onto the fire roads and the National Forest dirt roads to the southwest of the Ocoee Whitewater Center. 
The Okoe Whitewater Center, of course, served as the start-finish line this year, as well as many years in the past. After returning back from all the gravel and dirt roads served up in two different very large loops, the course returned to the ridge above the start-finish line to run another six miles or so of single track and the final three-mile push on pavement to the finish line. Total distance was just a few tenths over 100 miles, and the climbing was nearly 12,500 feet. Seemed like a bit of a who's who this year among race competitors, with many fast regional riders showing up to throw down with the top national endurance talent that was expected to be competing in miserable conditions with rain and cooler temps forecasted on race day. That start list included Brian Schwarm, two-time NUE Series champion Amanda Carey, 2014 single-speed NUE Series champion Gordon Wadsworth, 2014 Masters NUE Series champ Roger Massey, Danielle Musto, Carla Williams, who had some great results late in the season of 2014, Dan Rapp, Scott Hoffner, Ernesto Marinchin, Masters racer Tom Cruise, Linda Shin, Pete Henry, Barnabas Freustadt, and current NUE Open Men's Series leader Keck Baker, winner of the first NUE stop at True Grit just a month ago. Setting the stage for this year's event, racers were greeted when they woke. If they'd been able to sleep through the overnight thunderstorms and torrential rains in the area, with heavy downpours, saturated ground, muddy trail conditions, and relatively cool temperatures hovering just over 50 degrees right at the start as the rain continued. Forecasted conditions for the day just 24 hours previously included the potential for Armageddon-type conditions in the middle of the afternoon hours as a cold front was expected to roll through, bringing large hail, severe electrical storms, high winds, and potential tornadoes, leaving out only locusts and plague as the missing signs of the apocalypse. The start was set for 7 a.m. with all Kohuta 100 riders starting at the same time, numbering a bit over 200 that rolled out into the gloom and onto Highway 64 for the famous three-mile climb that ramps up just one quarter mile from the start line. The sister event, the shorter Big Frog 65, would start exactly one hour later with similar race numbers competing on the same course and the single track, but limiting the amount of gravel and fire roads ridden in the middle of the event. In the women's open race, it didn't take long for a certain former two-time NUE champion to put some time into the women racing her. Just three miles into the race, as they crested the paved road climb and dropped into the first bits of single track, Amanda Carey already had nearly a minute on two chasers in the form of Linda Shin and Carla Williams riding very closely together with Danielle Musto and Simona Vinciova just a few seconds further back. As the racers crossed across the river about halfway through the initial sets of single track, Carey had approximately three minutes of the Williams chin chasing twosome. Once out onto the open fire roads, the women were mixed in among the men, and choosing riders to pace with or ride with can be a tricky thing, as being lulled into being too fast or too slow can make or break your race. At the far end of the course, Kerry would make a wrong turn, a turn that several racers would miss, including Danielle Musto, and likely 
due to either coarse vandalism or high winds, which had picked up by the early afternoon hours of the race. Those winds, however, would never pick up to the point at what had been initially predicted. As this occurred right near the midway point of the race, it would not change the outcome, but boy would it allow for some excitement several miles later. As Carrie was making her way back through the latter portions of the course, she would later admit to being a little bit less focused on the race and was simply riding, enjoying the moment, perhaps contemplating her first race in the NUE without close friend and fellow Teton rider A.J. Linnell perhaps enjoying the great riding conditions that the day had finally evolved into and simply enjoying a great day on the bike. From behind, a pair of Carla Williams and Linda Shin began to catch glimpses of Carrie on long stretches of road and on portions of the course that would allow racers to see riders well ahead of them, perhaps climbing above them on the big curves of the forest roads. The two came up to be on the same straightaway as Carrie, Fairly quickly, and as the course began to steepen on yet another climb between aid station number 6 and 7, or about 85 miles into the race, Shin told Williams, go and get her. Williams didn't have to be told twice, and standing on the pedal, she reeled in the two-time NUE champion, closing the final 150 yards to Carey's rear wheel, and then went around her. Williams was able to slowly start to pull ahead, a completely surprised Carrie had no idea she was being tracked down from behind and put some power to the pedals to power up over the climb and moving ahead of Williams once and for all. Carrie would then ride a little scared for the rest of the race, knowing that Williams, at the least, and perhaps others, were much closer than she had thought. But as the Lucas sunscreen rider finally hit the paved portion at the bottom of the Thunder Rock downhill, she didn't need to worry, with clear trail behind her and fast pavement of head. Carrie would power along the false paved flat to the finish, winning in 8 hours, 49 minutes, and change. Carla Williams of Joe's Bike Shop would finish just over 5 minutes down, and the two would have a good laugh just after the finish about how close the race had become in the latter stages. It wouldn't be long at all, really just another 30 seconds or so for Blacksmith Cycles Linda Shin to come across the line, putting all three top women across the line within six minutes of each other. It would be another 30 minutes before Simona Vincentiova would cross the line in fourth place, and fifth would go to fellow mountain bike radio podcaster Danielle Musto, riding for Grand Rapids Bicycle, who admitted to being a little out of her element on the big climbs and warmer temperatures in the Tennessee and Georgia mountains, and is training and focused for Dirty Kanza, testing the endurance for that event. Again, Amanda Carey wins after a bit of surprise in the final 15 miles when some competition arrived seemingly out of nowhere. In the men's open race, in steady rain, the men's open field led the 200 or so racers across the parking lot and onto the long paved road climb, with Keck Baker seen often at the front of the early portions of the slope, keeping the pace high and quickly causing splits separating the pretenders from the contenders just a mile or so into this race. Anybody that had aspirations to place high on the day had to realize that if they weren't at the front early, Chasing back to that fast-moving lead group prior to getting in behind slower riders on the single track, they simply were not going to have great results. 
as the group exited the pavement, entering the flowy, gentle downhill that drops all the way back down the Ocoee River. Keck Baker took the whole shot and was seen up front with Dylan Johnson right there with him. A fast-moving group of nearly 15 riders was up front, but a large, nearly one-minute gap back to the first serious chase group was evident as the speed of that front group was intense. There were a few solo riders in there in that void between. As the group rolled through the flowy downhill that began the climb back up the Boyd's Gap overlook, the group remained consistent with Keck Baker, Christian Tangi, Brian Schwarm, Dylan Johnson, Wes Richards, Barnabas Freustad, Andrew Dillman, and single speeder Gordon Wadsworth all noted to be in that top group. As the group re-entered the Whitewater Center area, the lead group was down to approximately eight riders, with several riders having been involved in some wrecks on the Technical and Rudy River Trail just prior to that point. Several riders were seen sprinting across the bridge, a little bit bloodied, as they attempted the bridge to the front riders who had already begun the choppy climb on the south side of the river. Emerging out of the trails and into aid station number one, which served as the entry into the fire road section of the course, it was a small group of eight, noted to include Wadsworth, Richards, Schwarm, Tangi, Johnson, Baker, Michael Simonson, and Dillman, with chasers close behind all surging out of the trails, most skipping the neutral aid station while attempting to merge with that growing group on terrain that would definitely benefit riders working together. I personally was able to watch this front group come through the first four aid stations and was surprised to see an organized group that, though they were working together, were frequently joined by one or two riders every couple miles or so chasing from behind, with chasing riders frequently skipping the aid stations to make the junctions just after the big group was rolling out of them. After completing the smaller loop after aid three that allowed a few more riders to junction back to the lead group, including Brian Schwarm and teammate Dilton, who had stopped for a natural break and been caught a little further behind than they expected. These two chased very hard for nearly 20 minutes to finally bridge up just after aid station number three. The group rolled steadily, with riders in the group all stating that it was a good tempo, wasn't dawdling by any means, but also was not necessarily unfriendly to those taking part with just small efforts for little rises occurring as the terrain dictated. Into aid station number four, and the group had again swelled, now including nearly 15 riders, as several riders within 15 minutes of the group also included Scott Hoffner and Barnabas Freustadt, who had been caught out of the group way back in the early sections of the trail due to mechanicals or being caught behind crashes on course and been riding the first half of the race nearly by themselves, but keeping that lead group in check. As the group loaded up at aid number four, loading up was a necessity at this point of the course, as they were about to enter a 33-mile loop, returning back to the same aid station, but having no aid stations in between with plenty of climbing, and with the rain now stopped and the clouds breaking up, temperatures were beginning to rise well into the high 70s and expected to get much hotter. Simonson was seen taking a bottle and camelback for his loop, with a few others taking a third bottle into their jersey pockets. 
Wes Richards guaranteed the group wouldn't lollygag long as he was first out of that aid station, seen sprinting up the steep hill that rises out of that stop, with riders scrambling to complete their exchanges and not miss the train that Wes Richards was leading. The group remained copacetic for the next 20 or so miles with no notable moves being made, but anxious riders beginning to come to the front, including Simonson, who was using long, shallow climbs to grind out some hard tempo, forcing most into a long line behind him, and Tangi, who would use the more steep climbs to bounce to the front and increase the speed. Racers like Baker, Wadsworth and Johnson were never too far from the front, usually remaining in the top four to five, regardless of who was setting the pace. While riders like Schwarm was more than content to sit in or even hang on the back and let other riders do the pace setting. But near mile 70, all the pleasantries were quickly changing. First to take an ugly pedaled stroke was Keck Baker, who used the longer climbing sections that bring the group back to the same previous aid station to force a few surges that may have been only to test to see if everyone still had full sets of legs with them or had left them behind on the previous climbs. Two surges. Three surges, with the group responding individually, either dieseling back at their own rate or jumping across to cover Keck's wheel. Dylan Johnson was more than happy to join Baker's game and countered one of Keck's surges that forced Baker off his back foot and responding only to have Wadsworth join the fray, not wanting to miss the throwdown. With Gordon Wadsworth between the two leaders and the group behind, the gap started to grow. And when Johnson again surged, Baker could be heard saying, this isn't a good idea, Dylan. This isn't a good idea. Johnson would move ahead with Baker slowly drifting back, likely having decided to sit up and wait for the riders who, after the surges, had weaned themselves down now to just Wadsworth, Schwarm, Richards, and Schwarm's teammate, Dillman. It should also be noted that Brian Schwarm had several teammates sitting just minutes behind that lead group, though they had never made it back to the leaders, but were far close enough that the front runners would not want to worsen the odds by adding more of Schwarm's Think Green teammates to the group that contained only individual riders at that point. As the group climbed up a long climb through the fresh logging road made even more loamy by recent rains, Johnson, who had been within a few hundred yards or so of the group, was now gone, perhaps either by increasing his speed, but also likely by skipping the aid stations on course at aid station number five, approximately mile 80 or so. Behind Johnson, Schwarm was out of the group due to a flat tire, which luckily he was able to get to seal and then reinflate without issue, but he himself was now chasing one minute behind that chasing group. It was also during this time that Simonson and Dillman started dropping slightly behind the group as Schwarm then regained the front of the group, down to just Baker, Wadsworth, and Richards, but kept the same pace he had used to bring them back to move to the front and increase the pace even further. Behind the group, moving steadily through the ranks of riders who had fallen off the pace and continued to minimize the gap that had grown to several minutes at one point after aid station number five, was former NUE champion Christian Tangi, who was really throwing down the speed on the climbs, passing plenty of riders like Simonson and Dillman, shattered by the attack of Johnson 
as well as the speed of Schwarm, Baker, and Wadsworth setting tempo on the climbs. Soon, Baker was dangling on a really long piece of virtual elastic with just Wadsworth staying with Schwarm now as they attempted to hunt down Johnson. Through aid stations 6 and 7, they rolled and still no sign of Johnson for the chasers Wadsworth and Schwarm. Word had it that he'd skipped all the aid stations to gain seconds everywhere he could at the end of a 100-miler and in the hottest and most humid parts of the day. The chasers chased hard, but refueled when able at the aid stations, and then near mile 88, just past aid station number number 7, there was Dylan. He was caught and fading. As the two approached him from behind, Schwarm gave a little kick, and Wadsworth followed with no response from Dylan Johnson. And following the long slope up to the top of the ridge and the last single track near the 93-mile mark, Wadsworth and Schwarm rode steadily and strongly, now in the lead. As the two entered the trails, the work was being shared by both Wadsworth doing much of the work on the climbs and Schwarm leading the descents. Exiting off the Thunder Rock downhill, wheel to wheel, and onto the false flat to the finish. Three miles of pavement, and no one seemingly behind them. But behind the front two, Baker also got past Johnson, without much effort from Johnson to try and attach himself to Baker's wheel. But it couldn't be that simple for Baker. He would flat with a valve stem issue that he could not get to reseal. Three CO2s, and Baker was left asking for help from other racers on course, where eventually he received a pump and was able to reinflate his tire, but not before being passed by Johnson, then Wes Richards. Baker would later relate to likely losing somewhere between 8 and 10 minutes trailside. Up front at the finish line, as the front duo crossed the bridge just 100 yards from the finish, Wadsworth dove for the inside line and sprinted with Schwarm seemingly very content to ride in on Wadsworth's wheel. Brian Schwarm wins the open men's division in 6 hours, 55 minutes, and 53 seconds, taking his first National Ultra Endurance Series win. Wadsworth would handily win the single speed division, but also become the third person ever having the fastest time overall in an NUE event on a single speed, with the only other athletes to ever have accomplished that feat being Barry Wicks and Jerry Flug. Behind the winners, Christian Tanguy would reel in all, using his climbing specialty on the bigger climbs between miles 85 and 90 to catch riders one by one. Dylan Johnson would push himself trying to catch Tanguy on the Thunder Rock downhill and take a nasty little spill that luckily did not cause any major injuries, and he was able to continue without losing any placings in the final standings. Keck Baker would try and regain the placings, but was unable as the finish was far too close to allow for any difference to be made. And so, the final podium for the men's open at the National Ultra Endurance Series Kohuta 100 stop in 2015, Brian Schwarm of Think Green in 6 hours, 55 minutes for first, Christian Tangi of Rare Disease Cycling in second, Dylan Johnson of the Scott Pro Mountain Bike Team in third, Clemens Bicycles Wes Richards in fourth, and Keck Baker of Cannondale Carrytown Bicycles rounding out the podium in fifth, with all five riders finishing within 15 minutes of each other. 
in the Masters men category, 50-plus. To say Roger Massey is here, and we all know the outcome of this one, would be to discredit many Masters riders whose category is far less predictable due to a large number of very fast Masters racers who do not necessarily target NUE events, as well as constantly changing group of riders as riders age into the category. As Massey would later relate, it's exciting because there are always upstart quote-unquote freshmen that aren't as well-known as some of the others who have been in the division for a few years. This year, the outcome was definitely not predicted, with a new rider of the 50-plus category, but one that is no stranger to endurance events, taking the win. Local Jeff Clayton riding for the Supersport Athletic Wear, who is a little bit familiar with the trails in Corsica-Hutta, used insider knowledge to surprise the Masters field, winning handily in 8 hours and 11 minutes, nearly 17 minutes up on defending NUE champion and rare disease cycling racer Roger Massey. Third would also keep Roger anxious, perhaps for future events, as well as to show the growing competition in the division, with Cyclecraft's Tom Cruise just four minutes behind Roger. Completing the Masters men podium was David Joe Lynn and Alan Miner in fourth and fifth, respectively. And into the single speed division. With the front of the single-speed race actually occurring inside the open men's and overall race, right at the very pointy end of the peloton, so to speak, what with Gordon Wadsworth's fastest time overall, beating the men's open winner to the line by half a bike length, there was still plenty of racing going on in the single-speed division. From the gun, Ernesto Marincin and Dan Rapp, who had traveled together to the race, were riding together up the paved climb portion, just a minute behind that lead group as they headed off the hard stuff and onto the sloppy and wet red clay trails. Just behind them was military endurance team member Brian Patton and Pete Hendry, who was riding his drop bar single-speed mountain bike. Along the trails, they stayed together until a broken chain out on the fire roads caused a huge delay for Ernesto Marincin. Ernesto has not had great luck with Kohuta and chains, having broken a chain here that forced him out of the race in 2013. Marinchen would drop off Rapp's pace, allowing Patton into that spot, chasing Rapp through the early portions of the fire roads and aid stations 2 and 3. Patton would eventually bridge to Rapp, and the two riders stayed together until aid station number 4, when both stopped to refuel and reload their nutrition from their drop bags. Rapp would try and keep an eye on his competition, but when he no longer saw Patton in the aid station, nor on the 200 yards or so of trail he could see from the aid station, he figured Patton was taking a quick natural break and would be along shortly. It wasn't very much longer when Rapp, riding the long fire road trails, noticed that he could see Patton well up the trail, and Rapp had seated second place when Patton escaped out of the aid station unnoticed. Try as he might, Rapp was unable to pull the time loss back from Patton in the second half of the race, and that's how they crossed the line. Behind the two racing for second and third, Marinchin would be passed by Henry. The Kohuta 100 single-speed podium was set, with Blue Ridge Cyclery's Gordon Wadsworth, as previously mentioned, in first in 6 hours and 55 minutes, Brian Patton of Eastern Panhandle Bicycles and Military Endurance Team in second in 7.55 with Dan Rapp of Team Noah just three and a half minutes back. 
Rapp's teammate, Team Noah Pete Henry, would finish just eight minutes later with Marincin of Pivot Twin Six just a close further two and a half minutes back. Very close racing indeed in the single speed division if you take out the absolutely remarkable performance of Wadsworth on the day. All other single speed podium winners would finish within 16 minutes of each other through the top five. And in other single speed news, many of the top single speed contenders raced wearing the AJ Linnell tribute jerseys, replica jerseys made up in honor of the NUE single speed legend recently killed in a tragic plane accident. Riding in those jerseys for the day were Wadsworth, Rapp, Marinchin, Henry, and Scott Rosinko. It was a stunning tribute to see the jerseys on course and coming across the line dirty and worn, but with happy riders inside them, exactly how AJ would have wanted it to be. At the Big Frog 65, certainly not a National Ultra Endurance Series event, but the Big Frog 65 is a sister event of the Kohata 100, consisting of much of the same course, but eliminating the one large 35-mile loop of gravel and dirt roads, 65 miles and nearly 7,500 feet of climbing with a nearly equal mix of single-track trail and dirt road that unfortunately would be ridden one hour after 200 pairs of wheels of the Kohutta 100 racers had gooped up the trails a bit, turning messy, wet conditions into large sections of muck with four to six-inch deep mud in some sections of the lower portions and corners of the course. Just like the Kohutta event, it didn't take long for the three miles of paved road climbing to separate those who would be competing for the podiums and those who would not. By the time they entered the single track, it was already a select group of 10 or less, with only five emerging from the north side river trails to begin the trails that climb up to the entries into the fire roads at aid station number one. That select group of five included Josh Whitmore, Bradley Cobb, and Andrew Messner, and was showing tenacity and guts riding in nasty rain that continued to fall and muddy trail conditions that already made riders nearly unidentifiable. Up through the remaining trails that rolled, and quickly after entering the fire roads just 25 miles into the course, it was quickly down to just Josh Whitmore and Andrew Messer up front with three chasers riding about 30 seconds down, but not looking like a unified group. Onto the big rollers between aid one and aid two, Whitmore would later relate that he hadn't had any type of attack or surge, but had simply been trying to take advantage of momentum from a previous downhill to use on the next uphill when he realized he had a small gap that continued to grow. By aid station number two, Whitmore already had a minute over Messer, who continued a very strong tempo, slowly gaining time on the chasers behind, who had now disintegrated as a pack and were riding their own solo racers 30 to 45 seconds apart. Josh Whitmore would later consent that riding alone for the last 40 miles had him second-guessing that early effort a little bit, but that he simply went with what had happened in the moment. Josh Whitmore of Green Life Cycling would go on to win in 4 hours, 49 minutes, nearly 8 minutes up on Upland Brewing's Andrew Messer, who would hold off last year's runner-up, Bradley Cobb, of Rocky Top Multisport, 
who came within 45 seconds or so of catching a somewhat fading Messer. In the women's Big Frog 65, it was pretty apparent from my view who the fast woman in the field was. Mary Penta of Louisville, Kentucky steamrolled the field, rolling through the early aid stations with the front 20% of all riders in the event. She would ride strongly and consistently despite the conditions and win by nearly 30 minutes. The women's podium was Mary Penta of Bicycle Sport Racing in first, Canadian Alexa Straniak of Cycle Solutions in second, and Robin Kay of Dukes Cannondale in third. The single-speed division was much closer with Tennessee boys Nick Earhart and Lee Carmichael battling it out and putting two single-speeds into the top eight times all day on the Big Frog 65 course. In the end, it was Nick Earhart of Trailhead Bicycles beating Lee Carmichael of Motor Mile Racing by just three and a half minutes with a winning time of just under five hours and 15 minutes. Completing the podium in third place was James Prentice of Infinity Racing. In the Masters category, racing in 50 plus, just like the Gohutta NUE divisions, Racing among the open men leaders in the top five all day was Troy Zimmerman, brother of open men top five Timothy Zimmerman, who had used the pacing and racing of the front runners to put himself way out in front, become the class of his field. The Zimmerman brothers of first place racing would finish fourth and fifth side by side in just under five hours and seven minutes, with Troy taking the win impressively by 35 minutes in the 50-plus division over Steven Leibovitz of Weston Velo, with third place going to Robert Gaddis of Ruse Cyclerworks out of Michigan. And that nearly fills up the special edition of the National Ultra Endurance Series highlights of race number two for 2015, the Kohuta 100. I'd mentioned in the highlights of the single-speed race that many of the top contenders had worn A.J. Linnell tribute jerseys, very similar in style to the jerseys A.J. wore when he was a force to be reckoned with on every course he rode. There was such a strong reaction to those jerseys, seeing those jerseys on the trail and in the race, that the tribute jerseys are now available for purchase through Starlight Apparel. The proceeds from the sale of those jerseys will go to charities chosen by the Linnell family, ones I am sure that feature into the life of AJ. If you like one of those jerseys, please check out starlightapparel.com under their pre-sale selection in the shop. I'll put a link to it in the show notes for that website. Big props to Gordon Wadsworth for the idea of the tribute jerseys initially and to himself and Starlight Apparel for the ability to quickly put together a public order to not only support the charities of the Linnell family in AJ's honor, but to also allow anyone to maybe gain some of that AJ mojo and spirit while wearing an AJ tribute jersey this season in places AJ may never have gotten a chance to ride in. Costs, I believe, are $65 for each jersey with 8 or $9 in shipping, if I remember correctly. And so, with NUE number two now in the books, all eyes turn to the Mohican 100, set for June 1st. Always the highest attended NUE race on the calendar, and always a very fast course. 
More questions than answers for sure for this year's contenders, with Keck Baker leading the open men's field after winning the first race, but not having the same success in the second race. Another big question, can someone beat Wadsworth on a single speed? And will Wadsworth, as he has hinted, consider racing some of the events this year in the open men's division on gears? In the women's field, Amanda Carey is back and has related she is in for the series and planning at racing at least another four or five of the events this season, though mostly in the Western states. And so thank you for joining me for this second National Ultra Endurance Series highlight show at the Kohuta 100. It gave me a very unique perspective covering purely from the media side of things, being able to jump ahead point to point on the course and check out the races occurred without me having to figure out everything after having raced the course. I'd like to thank Corey and Charles from Trailhead Bicycle Company for putting on such a great event, an event that though the course has changed and dropped some of its uh, past signature features like Potato Patch, I think it has come up with a great alternative that actually leads to a difficult race course, but one that is much more interesting has interesting topography, and has breathtaking views, especially on the big loops overlooking the Okoe River and the long-distance Smoky Mountain Vistas. Regardless of the reasons, it's a great course change, and one that I'm sure will be widely talked about, as it already has been, by racers who attended. Put this one on your calendar for sure, if you're looking for a great early season challenge, especially in the Kenda National Ultra Endurance Series. This has been Mark from The Last Aid Station here on Mountain Bike Radio at the Kohuta 100 for 2015. Ride safe, and I'll see you on the trails and at the races. Take care.